0: Well, hello everyone. I hope those of you who are a little bit sleepy don't get a whole lot sleepier as I talk a bit about right conduct or sila. And I'm talking about this from the perspective of the noble Eightfold Path that we find in the Pali scriptures. Later on, I'll refer a little bit to Thich Nhat Hanh's views, which I think are extremely engaging and enlightening. So, what, it, what is called right conduct, as you know, is comprised of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. A typical exposition from the Pali scriptures the di- greater discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, uh, goes like this. What is right speech? It is abstaining from false speech, abstaining from malicious speech, abstaining from harsh speech. And abstaining from uh, frivolous chatter. This is called right speech. What is right action? It is abstaining from taking life, abstaining from taking what is not given, abstaining from acting wrongly in regard to sense pleasures. This is called right action. What is right livelihood? In this case the noble disciple abandons wrong means of livelihood, and arranges to live by right means of livelihood. This is called right livelihood. Now it might seem to us that the so-called precepts of right action and right speech are proclamations from awakened mind, much like the Decalogue kind of descends from the heavens. However, in the Mahayana uh, Sutras we have the systemization of the four reliances. Do not accept views you hear as true because of the reputation, the credentials as it were, of the source. But carefully listen to the words. Do not take the words as the literal truth, but consider their meaning. And do not take as truth the surface meaning of the words, but look deeply and understand they're reflected upon meaning. In other words, we should rely on our wisdom mind to reveal the true meaning of what we hear, what we read, what we experience. So notwithstanding the perils of intellectualizing, let us dig a bit to explore how compassion grounds the precepts and provides guidance in their practice. Uh, First, a note on terminology. What distinguishes compassion from loving kindness? In my lineage, (coughs) we use the example of the mother protecting with her life, her only child, as a paradigm of loving kindness, or metta. The example illustrating Compassion, Karuna, is watching a lamb about to be slaughtered. The point here is, in realizing the suffering that a butchered lamb would would endure, how could we bring ourselves to butcher that lamb? Compassion has to do with refraining from causing suffering. And loving-kindness has more to do with protecting beings from suffering and promoting their happiness. Rescuing the lamb from the butcher would be an act of loving-kindness. <clears throat> My teacher uh, periodically will raise tens of thousands of dollars uh, to live to buy, to purchase at market fish and to liberate them into the sea. Um, By the way, as an aside, when some Zen practitioners recently purchased non-local species and put them in the Hudson River to liberate them. uh, They were faced with charges of threatening uh, native species and habitats. (laughs) So I guess one must be careful, no matter what one's good intention. In the Noble Eightfold Path, what precedes right conduct is right intention. And this is stated to be simply the intention of nonviolence, of non-hurting. And it is this non-hurting or non-harming or not causing suffering that underlies the precepts that comprise right conduct. But still, why should I not butcher and roast a lamb for dinner? What underlies the injunction against not harming? After all, some of us are not all that squeamish about blood and guts. So, how are we going to be convinced that it is wrong? While some fortunate beings have generated a compassionate heart that does not bear any suffering. Others of us, at times, may need to rely on mindful reminders to act rightly. Our starting point is intervene the interdependence of beings, or in the language of Shantadeva, the sameness of self and other. I'd like to quote a couple of verses from Shantadeva's Way of the Bodhisattva. Strive at first to meditate upon the sameness of yourself and others. In joy and sorrow, all are equal. Let's be guardian of all, as of yourself. The hand and other limbs are many and distinct, but all are one, one body to be kept and guarded. Likewise, different beings in their joys and sorrows are like me, all one in wanting happiness. Much less poetically, I wish to offer um, two brief pieces of reasoning. These are in the first person. I use the word I. And I would ask you that when I say I, you say to yourself I. They're meant to be recited in the first person. And please see if you agree. As a living being, I have a will to live, to prosper, and to avoid unnecessary suffering. All living beings have a will to live, to prosper, and to avoid unnecessary suffering. I would not wish for any living being to cause me unnecessary suffering. One ought to treat any living being as one would wish to be treated. So I ought not to cause any living being to suffer unnecessarily. I employ the golden rule here because even though it might not seem to be part of the Dharma, it really does underlie, I think, the injunction uh, to non-harm, to be compassionate. So these lines of reasoning begin with a recognition of one's own vulnerability to suffering and that all beings share share such vulnerabilities. If I have such a vulnerability, how can I deny that other beings likewise have such a vulnerability? Uh, Please note that too, that I use the phrase unnecessary suffering. Because obviously sometimes, some suffering, or hurting as it were, is necessary for our own benefit. For example, medical procedures and therapies, or receiving criticism uh, at work and on our practice. So, in sum, right conduct in the Noble Eightfold Path consists of refraining from intentionally causing suffering. That is, to refrain from wrong conduct. This is, I believe, our bedrock responsibility. And I think we would agree that if one has the means, one ought to relieve beings from the suffering they experience, even though that suffering is not caused by us. However, the injunction to practice loving kindness is not an explicit element of right conduct, as presented in the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, this is gonna sound very strange. (laughs) Um, What is right about loving kindness, such as bringing good cheer to a friend who is not well, or giving your son or daughter a much hoped for birthday present, What is good about that, what is right about that, excuse me, is that it does not intentionally cause harm. It is not wrong conduct. Right conduct just is refraining from wrong conduct. And we all have the power to always so refrain. For as Shantadeva says elsewhere, we can always not act. We can be a log, he says. Be a log. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha Dharma is captured in three simple lines Do no evil, practice virtue, tame the mind. Do no evil is the way of the precepts. Practice virtue, as we have been hearing for the last few weeks, is the way of the Bodhisattva. So what is a Buddhist precept? If you are convinced that you ought not to cause any being to suffer unnecessarily, and if you see that certain kinds of action cause suffering unnecessarily to them, then you may further conclude that you ought to refrain from those kinds of actions. So the schema here is relatively simple. I ought not to cause any sentient being to suffer unnecessarily. Doing acts of a certain kind, X, would intentionally cause sentient beings to suffer. So therefore, I ought not to do acts of kind X. The main point here is that the conclusion is first person, I ought not to do acts of kind acts. So the Noble Eightfold Path lists three precepts of right action, a fourfold precept of right speech, and a precept of right livelihood. Traditionally, the precepts are conceived of as avowals. It may be understood in this way. I vow to refrain from destroying life. I vow to refrain from taking what is not given. I vow to refrain from sexual misconduct. I vow to refrain from verbal transgressions. At a later date with laypersons in mind, a precept to refrain from intoxicants was added to these four. The rationale there being that intoxication undermined one's responsibility to self and family. Together, these are the so called five precepts. On this Labor Day, we'll also come to discuss briefly right livelihood. Or on this eve of Labor Day, I should say. What precepts? and this is important I think from a Western point of view, really differ from rules as we understand moral rules. The difference is is that if you think of a moral rule such as thou shalt not kill, or one ought not to steal, or everyone ought to tell the truth, these rules are imperatives, they're commands, They apply to a general class of beings and they are issued by a higher authority by God or the state sometimes parents (laughs) who have the power to punish those who disobey so punishment and power not intelligence and truth characterize rules and laws. In Buddhism, however, there is no higher authority than one's wisdom mind. Of course, as a member of a monastic community, the Sangha might discipline one for violating precepts. But I wish to put that aside for now. In the Theravada practice, The precepts are given a relatively high degree of specificity in terms of the conditions of their violation. So, for example, taking the first precept, refraining from killing, there are five conditions. That there is a presence, there's the, the presence of a living being, the knowledge that such, of such a being is there, the intent or resolution to kill it, the act of killing by some appropriate means, and the resultant death of that being. So with those five conditions, we would have a violation of the precept. And the reason why this is highly specified is because in the Theravada tradition, the precepts are inviolable. They are inviolable. It's difficult to get around that fact, I think, for for that tradition. Now one may wonder, well, might not the bodhisattva transgress a precept as skillful means in protecting beings from suffering? One kind of case in the literature is of a bodhisattva who sees that a woman is about to kill her mother, an act that would bring severe karmic retribution. The bodhisattva, it is said, sees that killing the daughter would have negative karmic consequences for herself, for the bodhisattva, but it would save that the daughter from karmic consequences far, far worse. So the bodhisattva kills the daughter. What is crucial about this case is that the bodhisattva is not so much motivated by the notion of saving the mother per se, but by saving the daughter from suffering the karmic consequences of killing a parent. Now there is a well-known story of the Buddha who in a previous life as a bodhisattva, killed a boatman who intended the destruction of the 500 Bodhisattva merchants on board. And yes, the Bodhisattva wanted to save their lives, but his final thoughts were, quote, I can bear to experience the pain of the great hells that this person not slay these 500 merchants and develop so much evil karma. I will kill this person myself." So my takeaway is that unless one is accomplished enough to see how intentionally killing a living being benefits that being, and to accept the karmic price, one should simply refrain from intentionally taking the life of a sentient being. Not so easy. Now, there are more evident situations in which skillful means do warrant the apparent violation of one or another precept. Again, right speech designated four kinds of verbal transgressions, right? Lying, harsh speech, verbal abuse, we might say, malicious speech, gossiping, and idle chatter. I love that one. Idle chatter because... It distracts one from the noble silence or a meditative presence. Now perhaps you're familiar with this Zen story. This is one tri- one uh, iteration. A big burly samurai comes to the wise man and says, tell me the nature of heaven and hell. And the Roshi looks at him in the face and says, why should I tell a scruffy, disgusting, miserable slob like you? And the samurai starts to get purple in the face. His hair starts to stand up, but the Roshi won't stop. He keeps saying, a miserable worm like you, do you think I should tell you anything? And consumed with rage, the samurai draws his sword. He's just about to cut the head of of the Roshi off the head of the Roshi. And the Roshi says, that's hell. The samurai who is in fact a sensitive person instantly gets it. He has just created his own hell. He was deep in hell. It was black and hot, filled with hatred, self-protection, anger, resentment. So much so that he was going to kill this man. And tears fill his eyes and he starts to cry and he puts his palms together and the Roshi says, that's happened. Well, the Roshi's verbal abuse <laughs> might seem to violate the letter of the precept, of right speech. Um, it does not run counter to the principle of compassion that underlies the precept since rather than causing a samurai unnecessary harm, it was skillful means to bring him great benefit. For our age, I think Thich Nhat Hanh has offered an approach to the precepts that we can all learn from. You are very likely with this from reading uh, The Heart of the Buddhist Teaching. So he refers to precepts as mindfulness trainings. This indicates the responsibility that each of us has to understand the causes and conditions of suffering and to cultivate our compassion radar, as it were, and skillful means to address the suffering we encounter. Now, Han's personal avows take this form. Mindful of the suffering due to, I am committed to. That's the general form that he his precepts take, his mindfulness training. So let me just read two. I know you're familiar with these. But we'll see how far they extend beyond what we find in the Noble Eightfold Path. The first mindfulness training. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to support any act of killing in the world, in my thinking, and in my way of life." Again, first person. The fifth mindfulness training. Remember, the injunction against intoxication. My students never took to that one. <laughs> but in Thich Nhat Hanh, we have unmindful consumption. So it reads this way Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I am committed to cultivating good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I will ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body, in my consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I'm determined not to use alcohol or any other intoxicant or to ingest foods or other items that contain toxins, such as certain TV programs, magazines, books, films, Conversations, I'm aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with these poisons is to betray my ancestors, my parents, my society, and future generations. I will work to transform violence, fear, anger, and confusion in myself and in society by practicing a diet for myself and for society. I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self transformation and for the transformation of society. Wow. <laughs> um, so, in these cases, um, we can see how Nat Han's compassionate awareness of the causes and conditions of suffering. Just expand the range of the precepts as traditionally understood. In a third instance, as you might recall, right speech comes to include loving speech, deep listening, and resolving conflict. In addition to refraining from the four verbal transgressions. Naturally, each of us might have our own formulations of right conduct. And our own notions of how to practice the precepts. I think this is just the point. Regarding the first precept, for example, we might go on to ask, well, what about abortion? What about eating meat? What about the use of pesticides? What about research on animals? It is helpful to see how Dharma teachers from different traditions or different lineages reflect on the precepts. Nat Han frames the mindfulness training on not taking what is not given around the notion of exploitation as well as stealing. Others say we should even refrain from the use of honey since it is never given to humans by the bees. And for Nat Han, a glass of wine is a big no no, as you probably know. In closing, I'd like to take a brief look at the right livelihood. If compassion bids one to frame and live according to the five mindfulness trainings, then if possible, one should not take up an occupation or accept a position that requires one knowingly to violate the commitments and to so compromise one's aspiration to liberate beings from suffering. In the Discourse on Trade, we read, Quote, a lay follower should not engage in the five types of trades. Which five? Trade in weapons, trade in human beings, trade in meat, trade in intoxicants, and trade in poison. These trades involve creating conditions that increase the suffering of beings. Can we, can we even imagine how world history would have gone without the um, involvement in these five trades. Now, we may really think, <clears throat> we might really think that uh, how the, when we think through how the precepts relate to causes and conditions of suffering, their relevance to an array of contemporary occupations becomes broader, clearer, and more discriminating. Their scope increases even more as we keep in mind that poisons In the sutras refers to the sources of suffering, cyclic existence, attachment, aversion, fear, ignorance. So I really think that if we were to celebrate Labor Day, we might want to include the notion of promoting right livelihood, as well as workers' rights as traditionally uh, understood. I have a bit more to say, but I'm going to end here. It's getting a little late. So thank you.